morning. Our reading comes from Romans 11, 33 through 36, and it's on page 947 in your pew Bibles. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kate. You probably noticed that Kate read from Romans and not from Ephesians, where we've uh, been for the last couple of weeks and where we will continue to be for many weeks after this. Uh, John was scheduled to speak today from Ephesians 1, 11 to 14, uh, but he got a little sick toward the end of the week on Friday and needed to back off of that. So I needed to pull something together pretty quickly. Uh, and in God's providence, I just want to warn you that many of the truths that we're going to be working through today uh, are similar to what we've worked through uh, in the last two weeks. I didn't do this on purpose. I think God did it on purpose. But I hope this vision of God um, and his glory is stirring to you today and encourages, encourages you this morning. I don't know what you think of uh, when the October... Uh, the month of October rolls around on your calendar, what holidays you might think of. You might think of the coming Thanksgiving or the coming Christmas or New Year's or whatever. Maybe you think of Halloween. Um, but there's another one that is absolutely foundational to us as 21st century Christians. And I want to talk a little bit about that holiday today. It's called the Reformation. October is often called Reformation Month. Um, and so we are going to take a brief break from Ephesians today to talk about the place of the Reformation uh, in our lives as, as modern Christians and, you know, where it's derived from in the scriptures as well. So back to Ephesians next week. But for this week, let me tell you a little story about 21-year-old Marty, who was walking home for spring break from law school one day on a July afternoon. Uh, suddenly, without warning, a thunderstorm struck up, and a bolt of lightning struck so close to him that he was knocked off his feet completely. Scared to death, it was there in that moment that Marty, his heart beating, his blood pulsing, his adrenaline flowing, Marty makes this solemn vow to God in this moment. He would leave law school. He's scared to death. He's so scared that he's going to leave law school and become a devoted monk in service of the God he felt had saved him in that moment from the bolt of lightning. That's actually the true conversion story of Martin Luther. And he's the man who ignited the flame uh, that is still burning today. We call it the Reformation. We celebrate it in the month of October. Uh, as 21st century Christians, we owe our entire church experience, even this morning, uh, to this man, to Martin Luther. God was doing something cosmic in that moment during that lightning storm that affected Martin Luther that day. Well, after that day on the road uh, for Martin, he enrolled in a local monastery, and he dove into that monk life with reckless abandon. Uh, this was the life that he wanted. He was built for this. Luther loved this stuff. He loved the law, and he kept it well. He better have loved God's law, because to enter a monastery was to enter a whole new world of rules, like serious rules. Uh, rules for how and when to bow. Rules for how to walk. Rules for how to talk. Rules for how to hold your fork I kid you not, rules against laughing, 
Rules against bad singing. Some of us would be out right there. Rules for how, when, and where to pray. But he loved this because it gave him security with his relationship with God. He always knew where he stood based on how well he was keeping the law and apparently how well he was singing. Yet the longer he sort of immersed himself in this culture, the more troubled his soul became. As committed as he was, he soon realized that he'd fallen short of so many of the minutiae of monk life. He was so committed to the salvation of his soul, just all out committed to it, so committed to not cutting corners when it came to his acceptance with God that he absolutely, he'd absolutely exhaust those whom he came to confess to. So like the priests who he had come to confess to. Luther would spend up to six hours per day trying to catalog and confess his most recent sins to the priests. Sometimes he'd even miss chapel in order to confess more and then lay up more sins for which to confess because he, he skipped chapel. Anyway, um, one of these priests got so sick and tired of Luther confessing hour after hour after hour that he got fed up and said, look, Martin, if you're going to confess like this, go do something worth confessing. Go kill someone or something like that. Go actually do something bad. But for Luther, it was not a question of whether the sins were big or little. It was a question of whether or not he'd confessed every single little sin. Was his slate completely clean? Because he rightly understood that to get acceptance with the Father, to get into heaven, you needed a completely clean slate. If he did not have a clean slate, how could God possibly be pleased with him? Here's the thing, though. Even though the priest would have fully absolve him after these marathon confessions, Luther would still end up leaving the confessional booth a little bit unsettled, wondering where he stood with God. He wanted to not only be repentant, but truly and thoroughly repentant. This drove him into deep introspection and self-doubt and at some points even depression. Was he truly repentant? Or did he just want to get God off his back and avoid being punished by God for his sin? So he'd starve himself. He'd sleep on the stone floor of his cell in the monastery with no blanket, trying to punish himself. He'd ask himself, am I hungry enough? Am I cold enough? Am I poor enough? He had no assurance that his sin was actually paid for, that his soul was in a good place with his creator. And it drove him mad. Luther couldn't take the ambiguity any longer. He didn't want to keep asking himself the question, is all right between me and my God? Maybe you're there today, or maybe you've been there before. Perhaps the ambiguity of so many other religions, so many different divisions, even within our own religion, you know, Catholicism, Presbyterianism, Baptistism, I don't know. There's so many spiritual options for you, and you, you, maybe you struggle or are frustrated with the ambiguity. If that's the case, I want to encourage you to do what Luther did during that season. He began to study the Bible for himself, to read it for himself, something that was technically not allowed for the monks. They had to trust other people's interpretation of it. They weren't allowed to read it for themselves. This is fundamentally what the Reformation was all about, this book, coming back to the Word of God. What 
Uh, what he was reading for himself was in such stark contention with the establishment religion of the day, Roman Catholicism. So he'd read this and he'd compare it with his experience, and the two would not meet. And this was disconcerting, obviously. So, for example, there was this guy named Johann Tetzel. These are all German guys, so they have some German names here. Johann Tetzel, he was a traveling evangelist for the Roman Catholic Church during Luther's day. And he would famously say, when the corn... Corn. When the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Or even better, this is my favorite, place your penny on the drum, the pearly gates open and in strolls mum, right? He was a manipulative guy, Johann Tetzel. He was soliciting money for indulgences, which was a way the 16th century Catholics claimed was a way to reduce the amount of punishment one had to suffer for sins that they or even their family members had committed. This was the understood and agreed to common religion of the day. So to go against the establishment was actually to take your own life, put your own life at risk, often by being burned at the stake. So Luther was up against some pretty difficult, deadly odds here. So it was no small thing when a few years after this lightning storm, Martin Luther left his home on the evening of October 31st, 1517. October 31st was the day before everyone's indulgences were due. They were due on November the 1st in Wittenberg, Germany. That evening, Luther walked to the Wittenberg Castle Church and nailed a paper with 95 ideas to the front door of that church. These 95 ideas, or we've heard of them as maybe the 95 theses, these 95 ideas struck a match that would light the fires of reform in the church that we are still experiencing today. Like I've said, October is often called Reformation Month because this was the time of the year that Luther publicized these 95 theses. Well, during the Reformation, the church began to be reformed. Reformation, reformed, and reformed to the truth around the word. They were reforming their practices and their beliefs and their truth around the word of God rather than the word of man or priest or tradition or whatever. That's where we get the word reformation. Um, And so each year, the Protestant church, if you didn't know it, you're in a Protestant church right now. The Protestant church celebrates the reformation that was kicked off by Luther 504 years ago next week, 504 years ago next week. Luther's central question was this, who or what is the final authority for our lives? Who or what gets the final say in our lives? Is it the church? Is it the scriptures? Is it ourselves? Is it some other body of beliefs? What is the final say on what is right and moral and good and bad? So that fateful October was the beginning of a spark that would turn into a 500-year flame, a revolution that's still burning today. We still celebrate Reformation truths they're artfully hanging uh, in the hallway when you walk in. Maybe you've noticed them. I don't know when you've walked in. Uh, there's some pillar artwork uh, on those pictures as you come in, and then uh, the different aspects of the Reformation. Uh, we still sing Reformation songs. A Mighty Fortress is a song that Martin Luther wrote 500 years ago. Uh, in many ways, Trinity right now stands on the shoulders, on the tradition and the foundation of the Reformers. These godly men and women held unflinchingly to these five core truths. That salvation is found in, 
the scripture alone. So on screen there for you, the first sort of words are uh, Latin. Uh, that would be the, the old school way of uh, reading these and understanding these. These are actually the, the, the forms of the words that are written on our artwork there in the hallway. Uh, but these are the five core truths. Scripture alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. These are the five truths that the reformers stood on, the pillars of the Reformation. Since we're sort of toward the end of Reformation Month, I decided this morning that we would just highlight the final one for us. Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. So that's where we're going to be today before we hop back into Ephesians next week. Uh, A few summers ago, I took my family to Niagara Falls. And while we were uh, while we were there, we hopped onto one of those little boats that take you down like right to the base of the falls. I think it's called the Little Toot, uh, which is a funny name for that, I guess. But anybody ever been on, well, there's like the Canadian side, which is, I don't remember what side we were on actually, but there, I think the Canadian side is the Little Toot and the American side is the Maid of the Mist or something like that. You guys been on that boat before? If not, you should try it. Uh, an amazing experience. Um, it was stunning. It was beautiful. It was wet. It was where Jim and Pam got married. And do you, do you know what no one thinks about on those boats as they're inching closer and closer to the base of the falls? No one takes a mirror to sort of check their makeup or to see if their outfit is on point. No one is scrolling through their Facebook feed. No one is leaning on the railing of that boat thinking about the upward mobility that they have in their company. It's an experience that puts you at the background and the magnificence at the foreground. In a similar way, today's text is meant to stagger us, to shake our knees a little bit. It's meant to breed humility in us. It's meant to station us at the fringes with God squarely at the center and us all sort of looking slack-jawed at God in his great and beautiful glory. That's what's going on with Paul here. Uh, Starting in verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. And I just want to sit on these three words for just a minute here. We look at Niagara and we say, Oh, the height. Paul looks at our salvation and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and knowledge of God. So this this is our big idea today. God's glory should stagger and strengthen us. God's great glory should stagger us and it should strengthen us. Paul has just seen something by the Spirit's help. He's just seen something, and he's written about it in this book called Romans. It was a letter to a church in Rome, in Rome, Italy. He's just seen something. But I, I just want to encourage you not to forget that, he, that these four verses at the end of Romans 11 actually come uh, after nearly 11 full chapters of Paul writing about how God has righted the cosmic wrong in the universe. He spent 11 chapters teasing that out for us. If you're not familiar with the Christian Bible, that's what the bulk of the book of Romans is all about. It's all about the gospel, the good news that we can be justified by God even though we have sinned against God. We have done wrong in the sight of God. We can be justified by him. So as Paul is sort of wrapping up this salvation history in Romans 11, he sort of stands back. And he looks at the picture that he has just painted. He's relayed all that our strong God has done for weak humanity. And he spent a long time and spilt a lot of ink and a lot of words telling us about this. 
And then he steps back and he can't help but exclaim, Oh, the depth of the riches of God. This is all about God's glory. Because if you look there at the end of verse 36, all of these things lead him to say, To him be the glory forever. Amen. So, two points about soli Deo Gloria this morning for the glory of God alone. Two points. First, God's wealth is glorious. Real simple, God's wealth is glorious. I think that word depth there in verse 33 applies to each of these descriptions. The depth of the riches of God, the depth of the wisdom of God, and the depth of the knowledge of God. So it's not just a matter of God owning lots of stuff. Uh, It's more than that, but it's certainly not less than that. But still, it's the first thing that, that Paul is highlighting here for us. His riches are deep. God owns all the things, all right? All the things God owns. Deuteronomy sheds a little light on this for us and shows us just how deep God's pockets are. Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. This is staggering wealth, Trinity. All the bajillion stars, all the galaxies, all the planets that our telescopes can see and all those that our telescopes cannot see yet. Every grain of sand on the earth and on every planet in the furthest galaxy, every rumbling waterfall, every snow-capped mountain peak, every minuscule snowflake, every hidden algae in the deepest, darkest cave that no human being has been in yet, every unseen rock in the depths of the ocean, every precious stone, every precious metal, everything. It's all God's. God owns all the things. This is ridiculous wealth. This is the kind of wealth that makes our richest billionaires look ridiculous. It makes the powerful look like paupers. God's wealth is stunning. You know, I bet the guys that drive the little toots and uh, the maid of the mist, I bet the guys that drive those boats down to the foot of the falls are tempted frequently to actually be on their phones, right? Because they've seen all that there is to see for many years. They've taken this trip, I don't know, 10, 15 times a day. Uh, for years on end. They've seen all there is to see, but this is not the case with our God. You'll never see all that there is to see. There will always, always, always be more. More beauty, more complexity, more glory, more wisdom, more knowledge, more, 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 more. More of God to explore and enjoy. That's why Paul says, oh, the depths, oh, the depths of the riches of God. But beyond all the beauty and the glory of this, think about the practical nature of God's wealth. God's pursuit of what he wants is never restrained by what he lacks. This is not true of us. God's pursuit of what he wants is never restrained by what he lacks. Never. God can create whatever he wants, however much he wants, for as long as he wants. No one is like that. No one. Even the richest of the rich hit a ceiling that they can't shatter. C.S. Lewis makes this point, I think, in a funny way, in a book he wrote called Mere Christianity. He says, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. It is like a small child going to its father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. It's all very nice and proper. But only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. In other words, you cannot give to God anything that is not already his. Look there at verse 35. 
Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Answer, nobody. Nobody. If you could give him a gift that he did not already have, he would owe you. But you can't, so he doesn't owe you anything. And God never will owe you anything. And it's very humbling to all of us to think in terms that we have nothing to offer someone who has everything. In our world, we like to honor and sort of lift up people who are unique. We give them praise. We pay large sums of money to go see them sing or play or whatever. This is why LeBron James is nearly a billionaire. This is why Kanye West or Adele or Tiger Woods or Brad Pitt. It's why you all recognize their names. They get glory because they bring something unique to the world. But God, I know this is not proper, God is the uniquest, okay? God is the uniquest. God's stunning wealth demands glory because there is no one like God. No one like God. But God doesn't just own all the things. He also knows all the things. God knows all the things. Paul here says that God's wisdom and knowledge are deep. Wisdom and knowledge. What's the difference between God's wisdom and God's knowledge? Well, knowledge is awareness of facts, and wisdom is employing those facts toward the best possible end. It's one thing to know things. It's a whole other thing to be able to know things and use them for your good and the good of the world around you. God knows all the things, and he's wise with all that he knows. He has an endless supply of knowledge and enough wisdom to employ that knowledge. God knows every event that has ever happened in all of history. I know most of us know all these things already, okay? But sometimes it's good to be reminded just about how amazing our God is. So hang with me in these very elementary truths. They're beautiful and wonderful. They should stagger you because sometimes we forget. And they should humble you and strengthen you as you go about your week this week. God knows every event that has ever happened and ever will happen at every level of existence. He knows the physical things that have happened, the mental things that have happened, the emotional feelings that have happened in every human being for all of history, the spiritual things. He knows how all these things sort of relate to each other and affect each other. When something happens, he not only observes what is happening, but he can observe the inevitable chain of events that will happen after that thing happens. For instance, have you ever thought about the improbability of your existence as a person, of my existence as Josh? How unlikely is it that I would be here today? Thousands of years ago, your maternal ancestors were having babies that would somehow link up with your paternal ancestors' children. And that over time, those children would have children that would grow up and meet your other ancestors to have children that would somehow end up creating the only genetic pool possible that could make you a reality. It's mind-boggling to think about the improbability of me here and you there. It's crazy. And yet, God knew all of that without study. It's how he was able to set his love on you before the foundation of the world, like we talked about last week. He chose you, and he chose me. And the only way he could do that is by knowing all the things before all the things happen. He just knows it. That's what it means to be God. But it's better than this. He doesn't only know all the things. He directs all the things to the best possible end. This is what it means to be deeply wise. Paul says that God's wisdom is unfathomably deep. Verse 33. In his sovereignty, he conceives of and he carries out plans that have the best and right goals. 
making use of all his knowledge to bring to pass what he purposes. These are hard truths for some of us. Some of us have said goodbye to loved ones recently. We've been sick or struggled financially. It's hard to reckon with some of these truths. I grant that. But let's for a second here apply what we know about God's vast knowledge very specifically this morning and very personally. What does it mean for you? First, it means that God knows you thoroughly, you as an individual. This is a super sweet, encouraging truth, that God knows you, not just us, but you. He knows you, and here's the kicker. He still loves you. He knows you and loves you. Isn't this one of the reasons that, humanly speaking, we're afraid to be real with one another? We're afraid to actually tell one another what's going on inside of us. We're afraid our spouse or our colleague or our friend or our community group, if they come to know the true us, then we will disappoint them and that they will abandon us if they knew what we were truly like. If they really knew what I thought, if they really knew what I really want, if they really knew what I struggle against, if they really knew they'd leave, so we put a mask on or we build walls up to protect protect the true us. Here's the thing with God, though. Even if we wanted to, we couldn't build walls high enough to protect him from his knowledge of us. But it's even more staggering than that. Because of Jesus, we don't have to pretend and we don't have to build walls. We're completely safe in all of our brokenness and all of that darkness that you're afraid to tell people about. So have you ever thought that if God fully knows me, then there's no way he can fully love me? If he knows exactly who I am, my sin is too ugly, I am clearly unfixably broken. I have felt that feeling this week. I am unfixably broken. I'm never going to get past this. And who wants broken? God does. God wants broken. And this is good news for every last one of us in here. God wants broken. He knows and he wants you. Both of them. One of the many beautiful things about the gospel is that we can be both fully known by God and fully loved by God. Fully known and fully loved. But we spend way too much time dwelling on our mistakes and not nearly enough time dwelling on the magnificence of God in the beauty of his cross. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because of Jesus, God's love for you does not vacillate but instead it's steadfast, it's unwavering. There is nothing in your life, there is nothing in your life, no sin committed, no secret that you're protecting, nothing, there's nothing that scares God away from you. His grace is enough. Jesus' power doesn't stop where your sin starts. His love for you runs deeper than your sin could ever run. His love is deep. So here's the greatest comfort anyone could ever have. This is the greatest comfort you can take with you this week and every week. It's this. God knows you better than anyone else ever will, yet he loves you more than anyone else ever could. And this is only true because of Jesus. We love that man, right? We love that man. Do you need courage to face increasing hostility and marginalization as Christians? We're all going to need courage for that. Do you feel like the world or the media is constantly firing arrows at the very heart of your beliefs, scoffing at your Christianity, your Bible, or your convictions? If you feel any of those tensions, 
turn no further than this text, Romans 11, 33 to 36. When you feel bullied by your own flesh and your urges, when you feel bullied by a coworker or the media, just turn right here and point to your father in Romans 11, right here in this text, and say, look at him. He's so great. And do you remember uh, getting into those my dad is bigger than your dad arguments when you were a kid? Was I the only one who did this? If you got into a my dad is stronger than your dad argument, boldly raise your hand. Thank you very much. Um, Some kind of dispute would arise between you and your second grade buddy about whatever. I don't know. And then the obvious and clear path to resolution over this disagreement was profound. It went something like this. Yeah, well, my dad's bigger than your dad, and he will beat your dad up, right? I told Miriam about this a while ago, and she couldn't believe that I ever acted this way, but it was just it was what we did. Um, back then it was stupid, uh, but right now, Romans 11, it is wise. I'd argue it's wise. Because of Jesus, all those adopted in Christ are adopted into a new family with a new daddy. And just take a look at the daddy we get in God. Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and the knowledge of God. Are you fearful about your future? Are you fearful about your present? This text is an anchor for you. God's wealth is beyond your wildest dreams. When you feel insufficient, when you feel out of place, when all seems lost, just point to your daddy. Point to your daddy. Look at him and say, yeah, well, that's messed up, but look at my dad. Look at my father. He is beautiful, and he's going to take sin out. He's going to take Satan out and death out and all the darkness of this world out. He's going to snuff it out. All glory be to Christ. My daddy is bigger than all of this. God's wealth is glorious. Second, God's plans are glorious. I want you to imagine in your mind's eye walking up to a bookshelf in your home. See it in your mind right now. Now reach for that shelf that has especially a high concentration of your best laid intentions. Lots of books that you thought, ah, totally going to read that. You know what I'm talking about. Don't act innocent. Our, our, our shelves have more of those books than books we've actually read, right? Um, now pick out a novel from that shelf. It looks intriguing. The plot looked amazing. That's why you bought it in the first place. Turn to page 179. Read the ninth word on the page. Put the book down. Now, based on that word that you read, tell me the plot of the book from beginning to end. What's the story about? Who are the characters? What's the point? Where is it all headed? What is the mystery that unfolds progressively until that big moment at the end? There's no way you can know that, right? Not after looking at that one word. If you sat down with the author, they could tell you what the novel was about. But there's no way you could just know that by looking at that one word, right? Well, that's kind of like a picture, I think, of what our comprehension is of how all the pieces in our lives and in everyone else's lives all fit together. We simply do not have the capacity to put all the pieces together. There's only one who does, the actual author of life. We can sit down with the author and ask him to explain it to us. The choices he's made in history to bring us to this point are inscrutable, Paul says here in this text. There is simply no judgment that we can bring to God's book of history. We don't have the knowledge necessary 
to survey history and tell God that he should have done things differently. None of us have that right or ability. He is inscrutable. Verse 33 asks, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? No one. In other words, not only can you not give God a gift he doesn't already own, you can't give God counsel he doesn't already know. Is it any wonder then that we are often, as human beings, confounded and perplexed by the ways and the judgments of God? How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his